Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Spooktober. I mean, I mean, I'm Amber. I'm Amber. It's Spooktober. That's right, folks. Welcome to our second annual Spooktober, where we spend all of October and probably part of November dipping our toes in the murkiest waters in honor of Halloween and the spooky season. It is the most wonderful time of the year. So I know I set a high bar for myself last year with our Glad Holland episode, but I've got another super scary tale on deck for this month that we that just might compare to that. But Not today. Yes. Let's start off with something that is terrifying in another sense. Uh, and that being the specter of pseudoscience. Mm. This look. Yeah, this look. <laughs> this wookie? This is a Wookiee podcast. Oh, oh my <laughs> that, God. Did that you a see, thousand percent. Did exists. you see the video of somebody who put a picture of Chewbacca on a can of Coke Zero and pushed it across the table? I There's a wonderful, you don't watch things on YouTube, and this is why you haven't seen this. There is a whole compilation video of things that sound like Chewbacca. Ah, okay, great. Yeah, I'll send that to you and this. our listeners, because listeners, this is relevant. Because Yeah, because this week we're talking about the anthropology of the Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Anna, have you ever encountered a Bigfoot? I have not. No, not to my knowledge. And also, uh, before we start, can we tackle right up front what the plural is of Bigfoot? Big feet? Um, big, it's big, big it's foot. Bigfoots. Bigfoots. Okay. It's Bigfoots. Yeah. Bigfoots. Um, well, I think we're going to do a great job this Spooktober because I am starting this off with a scary story of my own because I have encountered a Bigfoot. Tell me more. Okay. All right. And like, like seriously, there's like no BS. Like this is actually. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm I'm just letting everyone know that like. This is not a narrative device. Yeah. That we're using here. This is something that actually happened to me. So um, I was in high school and it was the, um, it was probably my junior or senior year of high school and it was very early in the academic year so the it was still um it was still light out um Mm -hmm. and so it was around seven ish and i know because of what was on the tv in the other room i was listening to a rock block of metallica on a local um radio station and i had my windows open and so i am from north central west virginia i am from the woods. And, um, this was also a, um, this was a cicada year. And so there were like cicadas outside screaming. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. and so all of these things, it was just like normal evening, birds, crickets, cicadas, um, Metallica, me doing my homework, <laughs> um, lots of angst. 
and I hear this sound coming. I hear a sound from um, up the hill um, where the the woods thicken up a bit. It's um, there are not a lot of people around where I live, but that's sort of where. Um, the edge of what was originally a large farm that had been divided into the four plots of land of people that lived on this hill now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, um, it was a sort of started as a yell that, um, escalated into a scream. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, sort of crescendoed just like the loudest thing that I like had heard at that point possibly still have heard like a a thing make um and then it sort of broke into um some like more like guttural sounds that were less loud um a chill went over me um i reach over and flip the um the switch on the radio off like in like a single motion and it does it again it happens again and I am thoroughly freaked out. But what is more frightening about this is that after it stopped, everything was silent. I didn't hear birds. I didn't hear the crickets. I didn't hear the cicadas. It was just this moment of silence after this like terrifying noise. And I slammed my um, window shut, locked them. Um, like dropped my blinds and like ran into the living room and was like, mom, I heard something. Did you hear that? And she's like, no, what? Um, <laughs> she was watching like inside edition and, and, um, I, so it was starting to get dusky at this point, but it's still, but sometime later, my mom went out, like she went out on the porch later that evening so i guess when it was dusky and a few years later she said oh that night that you told me about that i like i did hear it and then when i went out later there was like somebody with a flashlight like somebody was looking for whatever it was that was out there so it wasn't just me that heard it it was also my mom um it's not a big house so it's it wouldn't be hard um but also maybe of like somebody else on my hill but nobody ever mentioned it um i is being i I know that it wasn't a bob a robert cat um i know that it wasn't a mountain lion i know there wasn't a fox (laughs) i'm so sorry excuse me for one moment izzy Sorry, it wasn't no. a fox. It well, yeah, it wasn't a fox. It wasn't any of those things. Um, the only thing that I have found, because um, I, you know, fired up the dial up later and was like <laughs> looking <laughs> for what, yeah, looking for what it could have been. <laughs> um, the only, the only other sounds that I have heard like that are from alleged Bigfoot encounters. And so you can find those mm. sounds. And I'm going to send one to Anna, which the um, which she will insert into the show. And now, listener, yep. hear what I heard. Pretty scary. So... 
that is my Bigfoot experience. And I will walk you through some cryptoanthropology. But first, Anna, give me yes. give me a little bit more of a an introduction to our okay. subject today. Yeah, I look forward to being walked through this because uh, you have, since your high school encounter, uh, sort of been steeped in in this cryptozoology or cryptoanthropology, and I am a newcomer, so I feel very much like you must oh, have felt for our Atlantis. Don't episode, make it. Don't make it seem like this was like my like. <laughs> my no, no, no. I just mean like I know no, nothing just, about this. I know a lot about this from just my more generalized interest in pseudoscience and um the paranormal and things i wasn't yeah, like, so sent I'm just on like a mission. I, this wasn't my like on the road to tarsus moment um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry bigfoot but yeah okay Get well i'm not either way i'm not here to cast stones at crypto anything i'm here for the story and that story is a confusing one for me uh for one thing there are a lot of different names in play here. So we got Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yowie, Skunk Ape, Yayali. And for centuries, people across North America have had sightings. So many Native American cultures have written or oral legends that tell of a primate-like creature roaming the continent's forest. In these tales, the animals are sometimes more human-like, sometimes they're more ape-like. In the mythology of the Kwakutl tribe that once heavily populated the western coast of British Columbia, Zunukwa is a big, hairy female that lives deep in the mountainous forests. According to legend, she spends most of her time protecting her children and sleeping, hence why she's rarely seen. The name Sasquatch, though, comes from Halkomelem, a language spoken by several First Nation peoples that occupied the Upper Northwest into British Columbia. Um, these groups are also often referred to as Coast Salish peoples. In California, there are century-old pictographs drawn by the Yokuts that appear to show a family of giant creatures with long, shaggy hair. Called Mayak Datat by the tribe, the image bears a resemblance to the commonly held vision of Bigfoot. So we're going to touch on the more kind of global phenomenon of unidentified bipedal creature sightings in a minute. But for now, we'll just focus on North America. So the first real popularized discussions of giant hairy forest humanoids don't really seem to coalesce in, in the news until the 1950s is, is what I found. So there was one famous account that I found from 1924 from a group of prospectors on Mount St. Helens, but not much else that early or any earlier than that. Um, everything really seemed to be kind of from 1958 onward. So another problem with this early kind of Bigfoot lit <laughs> in my cursory <laughs> literature review that I did. Um, there seemed to be times when when there was one animal confused for another, which might explain the origin of the name Bigfoot. Newspaper accounts show that Bigfoot was a common nickname for particularly large, aggressive grizzly bears who ate cattle, sheep, and attacked humans. So it wasn't until 1958 when a tr California tractor operator named Jerry Crew found a series of huge muddy footprints that the term was popularized in re in reference to the the primate like humanoids. So and then after that point in the 50s and 60s you really start seeing Bigfoot, Sasquatch, etc as a character in like the splashy pulp fiction stories and you know kind of in the 70s with Star Wars, right? You got the Wookiee 
That's very Bigfoot-esque. And so the idea of this particular cryptid really makes it into the public consciousness after that point. Okay, Izzy. I know. Cat. Like, a little cat squatch. Cat squatch. Um, well, she desperately wants to inhabit one of the cardboard boxes that's in this room. Can you not, though? Can you not? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So I'm kind of shooting from the hip here, but I would not be the bit least bit surprised if the Wookiee was inspired by um, the Patterson-Gamlin film. Like the 1967, the really famous one with yeah, um, I, I wouldn't foot. be surprised because, either. Supposedly, it was um, his dog, also. Well, um, because um, George Lucas is based in Northern California, mm-hmm. and could have easily pulled some of that from yeah, for sure the, the local lore. But um, like many other pseudosciences, because you know, as this as there's been increasing interest there is this design there's this desire to sort of uh scientify yeah and like make it more like regularized and sort of quantified um bigfoot studies have taken on a veneer of rigor um as this as a desire to sort of have legitimacy and and like better understand this. So Bigfoot enthusiasts have established categories uh, from among reported sightings. And um, I first encountered this classification of Bigfoot subspecies, I guess if you want to call them that, on another <laughs> podcast, which is very credulous. Um, and it was just an interview with um, one of the the hosts of Bigfoot Outlaw Radio. These are some guys oh. based in Oklahoma in Oklahoma. You can find uh-huh. you can find them. Um, they have put a lot of time and effort into this. Um, now I'm gonna pull a lot of the information on these four types um, from a website called Bigfoot 411, um, to which I will indeed link in the show notes. Um, but what we're gonna, what I'm going to do as we go through um, the assumptions undergirding the four flavors of Bigfoot, I'm going to like pull out some of the things that are referenced or some of the things that are are nodded to as as part of this kind of veneer of rigor, and we're going to see what the science has to say about them. Okay, so that's what we're doing, and that's so. Is the science me? Am I the science? I'm also part of the science. Okay, right. good. But no, I, don't, thing, I don't know. The, you you developed this script in secret. Your little your little assignments throughout are where I like need your science. Um, okay. Yeah. No, there's really just the one part that's in secret, which is all about <laughs> uh, So, type one, classic Sasquatch. <laughs> classic Sasquatch. Yeah. Um, so this is the 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 Bigfoot, and also there's this sort of this um, trend of folks calling them Sasquatch or Sasquatch um, instead of Bigfoot as this kind of um, the way that some folks who do yoga will use their like Sanskrit names rather than Prana. We're like talking about like the the poses where it's you're not doing like tree pose you're doing the whatever the whatever is the Sanskrit word. Yeah. 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 It's like it's sort of that kind of like this is more legitimate. This is Authentic. it's sort of that like um by taking some kind of like indigenous word for it, it is somehow 
Like, yep. It's it's a it's a it's a thing. It's a it's mm-hmm. a thing that you see out there. And so this is one where people will say Sasquatch. Uh but like I'm just gonna call it a Bigfoot because I'm like because um if you take a dive into the actual um like First Nations and indigenous stories about these things, there's actually like a lot more going on and it's kind of really reductive to just say like this like hairy big dude in the woods is this thing. Makes sense to me. Yeah. So classic Sasquatch. Um, so um, <laughs> the Bigfoot looks like a cross between a human and a mountain gorilla. There's a link to a mountain gorilla for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a large, powerful build and a thick, broad chest, black hair and gray skin. Um, other hair colors are reported as brown, auburn, cinnamon and occasionally white. Maybe the old one. Um <laughs> Neil Young song Cinnamon Girl, not about a Bigfoot. Uh, You don't know. (laughs) The head, though massive, has been described as relatively small for the body. Type 1s sometimes develop a sagittal crest, which can look like a person wearing a hoodie, which Mm. feels like an own Mm. goal in this description, but okay. Which can look like... Like, all right. Um, they have a conspicuous brow ridge with a receding forehead, giving the eyes a deep set look. The eyes are hard to see, but have been reported to be proportionately further apart than a human's eyes. That's on account of that hoodie. <laughs> um, no, it's the brow ridge. So mm-hmm. type ones have a flat face with prominent cheekbones and a square jaw. The mouth region is only slightly protuberant. That's going to mm-hmm. factor into some of the other types. So okay. like a more a more humany face. Um, Less prognathic. Yeah. The nose is near human in shape, though pug or flat, sometimes with forward directed nostrils. The mm-hmm. height average for the sampled population is seven foot. What um, is the sample okay. size? I was just wondering what, what the say? sample size was. So, no, the, 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 so the sample size, yeah. So this is where like people will say, like they'll see it and they'll see like, they'll, they'll see it from like several hundred like meters away and then they'll go up to the, perhaps like the tree that they ah. saw them at and like where the head cleared, like they'll okay, measure so that yeah, branch. Measure. Okay. So that's okay. sort of, so it's not that anybody's out there like while it's asleep, like pulling out a tape measure. <laughs> like this is how people like, there are both just like folks that are like, it looked about this high, this tall. Mm-hmm. Um, or like they're using, they're, they're using like, around it in the environment Mm -hmm. um and then there's also um there will be places where you see like perhaps a hand you'll see like a handprint or like something so you measure where that was so that's so sort of like those like the the population of reports the average comes out to um, i see about About seven foot about seven feet. Um, yeah. However, what's been presumed to be alpha males have been reported at nine foot and larger. Uh-huh. So that's that sort of there's a range there of, mm-hmm. of what has been described. And so sexually dimorphic species. Yes. 
Um, <laughs> or perhaps this is representative of like ages. So maybe a juvenile versus ah, an adult, especially uh-huh. when you have the ones that like there's slight, they're different colors. Like perhaps mm-hmm. they like grow into that and then they turn white at old age, like mm-hmm. eh. silverback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. And yeah. so the average type one is estimated to weigh between 500 and 800 pounds. Gosh. Uh, yeah. Which will come in like when we talk more about the the science of this. Uh, remember uh-huh. that number. Uh-huh. So this is the, what also called the Patty type, um, Patty named af- so named after the famous Patterson Gimlin film because the um, the Bigfoot that was filmed in that film um, that is called Patty because not only Patterson Gimlin but also because it is of what has been identified as female. Okay, um, sure. And um, so it's the one that gets the most press. Yes. But Anna, did you know that there were three more types to go? I do now. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Yep. Um, Well, three more types and then others that sort of don't even fit into that. They are seen as sort of like others outliers beyond that yeah like the um genuqua that you were talking about there um, yeah, yeah among yeah. coast salish peoples like that is something that i seen as something separate like there are other ones that are seen kind of separate um, okay and then also like the things that exist on other continents are seen even more separate um so going on to type two which will become your favorite type <laughs> so soon okay oh i okay. see your cursor is ready to click on i'm ready i'm ready <laughs> okay but tell me about type two so type twos and so this is back from um bigfoot 411 um type two seem more ape-like than type ones um and a lot of that has to do with the um the they're more prognathic um okay. they're reported in many areas of north america but especially in the south Mm-hmm. Type twos have a bestial man-like build and large eyes with a large pupil dilation for night vision. The hair is most often reported as black, but auburn, orange, and cinnamon have been reported. Cinnamon again. Uh, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> They're all, they've all got the same box of L'Oreal hair dye. Yeah. Cinnamon. Um, 
A bit smaller than the type ones, the average height is around seven feet. So it seems that they're just uh, yeah. the standards of devi- the standards of deviation are tighter there. Um, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Type twos tend to be very territorial and can be aggressive. Uh-huh. Um, they seem to kill a lot of livestock, especially the smaller varieties such as goats and chickens. Um, type twos leave human-like footprints, but can seem very much like known primates, especially chimps, orangutans, and billy apes. So, <laughs> speaking of unidentified primates, what's a billy ape, you say? It's- so, I thought this was something that wasn't real, so I looked them up. And they super are real. And kind yes. of like weird. Um, the, yeah, so, they're awesome. And also, I just want to, you're not saying Billy as in like Billy goat. It's not. It's, yeah. It's B, like B-I-L-I, Billy. Yeah. Billy. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. they're a subspecies of chimpanzee. Yes. So they are, I guess, like biologically chimpanzees, but kind of mm-hmm. culturally yeah. they're, yeah, genetically chimpanzees, but but culturally, they're more gorilla-like. Yeah, which is fascinating. Which is really fascinating, and for and they live in the Billy Forest of the Democratic Republic of Congo. They're very, very yes. cool. And it wasn't until like fifteen years ago that white people believed in them. Like they were seen as like the and I think they're the, also sort of the, the mythical mythic gorilla apes. chimp. Yeah. Well, they're like the mythical apes that. Uh, Tarzan was raised by like that sort of what they were like like an unreal thing and everyone's like no they're real and (laughs) no no check this out some guy some guy who's like an anti-bush meat advocate or whatever was out there and he's like what whoa 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 whoa, hang on yeah so then uh he came back the heck on yeah so that's really cool Yes. Um, so something else that I learned while reading about type two Bigfoots um, is one of the funniest images I have ever <laughs> seen in my life. And it launched me on this like this new phase of my life in which I am obsessed with this. Anna, okay. I hope you have your affairs in order because you are about to drop dead. <laughs> OK, let me let me jot down a quick living will. And then can I click on this image yeah, now? Click on the image. OK. Uh oh, and I'm gonna. Tell what, the, what is that? that? The I'm gonna I'm gonna that? give you a sound of this image, and it's. Ooh, I hate that. <laughs> so, Anna, <laughs> you are looking at a Neanderthal. <laughs> I'm not though. I'm super not. So, for one thing, so I don't think like, Neanderthals had slitted th- pupils. This, so, what okay. Anna is looking at right now is basically like a planet of the apes ape who has become like a old timey like criminal in um, the community in, like, in London where Jack the Ripper worked. Hey, governor. Yeah, like it's, it's just like very much like. So it's got like yellow teeth and it's grimacing and it's got all these scars and it's got cat eyes and it's got a spear and it's just standing behind a tree going, Amber, what is this? So this. I tell you what I like. So (laughs) that's what he's doing. This guy, what is um, an image that was commissioned by a researcher. Um, And so that makes me sad. So like the image itself was used by the gentleman behind Bigfoot 411 who like does some cool Photoshop stuff where he's like, he will modify images 
based on descriptions and so sort of create these photoshopped so it's sort of like composite sketches but like digital composites of what these the things police could sketches look like. of, of yeah basically Bigfoot. and so he th- his his base image was pulled from them and us so it's them plus us um okay and and then he modified it from there and I was just like, what's going on here with you calling this a Neanderthal? And then I found them and us. Okay. So I'm going to read to you. What, so what, but what is them and us? Is it a, so, is it a, so I want a you, website? Is so it a, I'm going to read this to you and then like, you're welcome. I didn't want there to be like a ton of dead air. So I'm going to tell you about it. Okay. Um, okay. So I am at the website themandus.org. So it's also spelled like (laughs) themandus.org. Themandus.org. So Carter Rare Press Australia presents Them and Us, How Neanderthal Predation Created Modern Humans by Danny Vendramini. We consider this to be the most important book on human origins since Darwin's Descent of Man. Put aside everything you thought you knew about being human, about how we got here and what it all means. Years of rigorous scientific research has led Danny Vendramini to a new theory of human origins that is stunning in its simplicity, yet breathtaking in its scope and importance. This guy has come up with (laughs) Neanderthal predation theory. So this guy, this guy. Vendramini's Neanderthal predation theory is one of those groundbreaking ideas that revolutionizes scientific thinking. It represents a quantum leap in our understanding of human origins. NP theory reveals that Eurasian Neanderthals hunted, killed, and cannibalized early humans for 50,000 years in an area of the Middle East known as the Mediterranean Levant, see map below. Because the two species were sexually compatible, Eurasian Neanderthals also abducted and raped human females. Them and Us cites new evidence from archaeology and genetics to demonstrate that this prolonged period of cannibalistic and sexual predation began about 100,000 years ago, and that by 50,000 years ago, the human population in the Levant was reduced to as few as 50 individuals. The death toll from Neanderthal predation generated the selection pressure that transformed the tiny survivor group population of early humans into modern humans. This Levantine group became the founding population of all humans living today. NP theory argues that modern human physiology, sexuality, aggression, propensity for intergroup violence, and human nature all emerge as a direct consequence of systematic, long-term, dietary, and sexual predation by Eurasian Neanderthals. Then, Neanderthals, the perfect predator. Evolutionary detective. Danny Vendramini, begins with a radical reassessment of Neanderthals as a unique primate species. He draws on the latest findings in Neanderthal behavioral ecology, as well as new archaeological and genetic evidence to show that they weren't our docile cousins that looked and behaved like humans. Us humans. How archaic hominids became modern humans, who conveniently look like photos of indigenous Amazonian children. Editor's note. Okay. NP theory is a, quote, unified field theory, end quote, which for the first time explains the physical, the unique physical, behavioral, and sexual characteristics of modern humans. Them and us explains how, why, and when we became the unique species we are today. By the book. It is available in paperback and ebook. <laughs> Amber. So, this Amber. guy... <laughs> 
I'm this, so angry. This guy. So I, I'm going to send you, oh my God. Um, so this guy. So Neanderthals hunted at night. That's why we're afraid of the night. Um, so this, Ever. this guy, this guy, like I've been sitting on this for a week. I'm and going I'm to quit this podcast. I, I'm so angry. Oh <laughs> I just saw the photo of the podcast. Um, I'm I just yeah, I just sent Amber a photo of my cat looking at the looking, photo of the like Neanderthal, Neanderthal and then looking at me um, as if to say, "So I sent you this a link." Awful. Okay. So this so this book, which I tried to download the first three chapters up, but it the file wasn't found. Um, so. So the author here argues that, like all prey species, early humans acquired the innate ability to identify Neanderthals and remain hypervigilant for telltale signs of their presence. Well, if this photo is meant to be a Neanderthal, someone has not retained the ability to identify a Neanderthal. Um, In modern humans, this vestigial predator identification module is still expressed in art, myths, movies, and other cultural forms. So, like, sexual predators in Roman mythology, you got those, Mm. like, satyrs. Satyrs, yeah. Them satyrs? Neanderthals. Uh Okay, Um, okay. Eyes, prey species have an innate ability to identify their natural predator in order to affect es- escape strategies. Vendramini argues the distinctive eyes of Neanderthals provided a quick and reliable means of identifying them. So optical Has features seen have been hardwired ever? into our genes. Today, this innate fear is expressed in a universal portrayal of bug-eyed monsters that transcend the history of art and culture. This preoccupation with the telltale eyes of threat is... Wines, wines is wines through. through art, mythology, and movies, and Gollum, um, I, w- werewolves, it, vampires, and other night stalkers, totes, Neanderthals. Neanderthals in med- medieval art? Look at him. That's a Neanderthal. Look at I him. Mean, That's a Neanderthal. Mm. Neanderthals in go, popular culture. Finally, we got there. I, Artistic okay. expressions of creatures that possess Neanderthal characteristics are not limited to ancient times. The way modern artists, hoaxers, villagers, and filmmakers depict the Yeti. Villagers? Yeah. yeah. Villagers. Yeah, that's my profession. I'm a villager. Okay. Um, Amber's in belly. There's villager. been at least six villagers. Okay. There's the fireman, the policeman. Construction worker? The construction worker. The racial stereotype. Mm. There were more, right? But, okay. So, the Yeti abominable snowman... Bigfoot and other imaginary creatures bear an uncanny resemblance to the latest scientific reconstruction of a Eurasian Neanderthal below right, commissioned by Danny Vendramini. It says, um, by the book. So <laughs> I need to go yell into a pillow for 20 minutes. I told this you. This is so dumb. It's spooked over. Yeah. So I read, um, I also, f- I found a paper. This is the paper that I like gave up halfway through and had to watch Shit's Creek <sighs> for four hours last night because I was just like so mad where I'm just like, you're using these words and yet, so I'm going to send it to you too. I do not think they mean what you think they mean. Um, but yeah, I'm going to send it to oh, you. Oh, man. Like, but like, okay, so all of these designations, these bug eyes and that that doesn't, none of that describes what Neanderthals know, right? actually looks I know. like. So like, so he's like never a, seen a Neanderthal skull or anything like that. Yeah, he he's like found a thing 
No, he no he he dreamed a thing. No, yeah, he, like, he it has came to thing. him in a dream. Yeah. <laughs> he dreamed a dream. <laughs> I dreamed a dream of stupid stuff. But also, I keep thinking. So as I was reading this, I was thinking about the last Neanderthal. Claire, our friend of the show, Claire Cameron's book about yeah. the last Neanderthal, and I just imagine that first, um, like the prologue where you you like oh, you encounter her, seeing, like if you yeah. imagine meeting her, <laughs> and it's just it's like the girl is standing there going. and so it's just like it's a it's a beautiful book and a beautiful description uh, but not if you imagine that an actual neanderthal would look like if you encountered one and it's just (laughs) (laughs) so lord um sorry to everyone except danny ventramini okay we got two more types to go i'm so sorry yeah hit me this is yeah but it's (laughs) <laughs> Woof. It's not gonna that was a l- it's not gonna it's not we, gonna get we better. jumped the shark and by which I mean we jumped the Neanderthal. Grimacing. Yeah. All right. So well, type three is uh-huh. pee frightening. And yep. definitely not something I would like to encounter or believe I encountered. And I've heard mm. like I've listened to people talk about their experiences meeting these and it just like Scares that sounds scary. It scares the bejesus yeah. out of me, and I yeah. don't want to ever come in contact with a thing that makes me think it could be this thing. Um, okay. The type three is something like a mandrill human mix. Already scary. Um, check out the drill. <laughs> it's what, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, well, they there is a species a of foot, ape but more called savage. a drill or primal. Um. Which is scary. That's scary both in terms of what the undertones are, but also just scary in terms of what they're describing. Um, Descriptions of the face vary, but most reports describe a large dog or bear or baboon-faced bipedal mammal. So that sort of snouty, prognathic thing with, like, big old canines. Um, So people talk about, like, a dog man or, like, some kind of, like, devil dog. Like, really really scary things that people calling in on Jim Harold's campfire. God, I need to get out of my house. Um, Type threes can be extremely tall. Ten, there's, like, ten reports of ten footers to fifteen footers with oversized heads that look more monster-like than ape-like. They tend to live up in the mountains but will come down for food. They're, so they're teens. <laughs> the fur is typically dark or deep brown. One witness mm-hmm. reported seeing a type three wearing animal pelts over their fur. Well, that seems redundant. Which is even scarier. <laughs> they may eat humans, huh. but reports of man eating are rare and often based on very old legends. Mm-hmm. Um, fair enough. Type threes tend to incite reports of paranormal characteristics like having glowing red eyes or being bulletproof at close range. This, which like, that's a totally paranormal big very, very scary. It's just like, just like beyond anything I can deal with. Just like, Um, I'm out. (laughs) Nope. Yeah. Like my brain just shuts down with, if I get within like 300 miles of Mount Shasta, I'm just like, nope. (laughs) But, um, yikes. No, thank you. However... Type three brings us the second absolutely real primate that I heard about for the first time ever in preparing this. has been like a revelatory episode for both of us. (laughs) Um, The drill. They're in the same genus as mandrills, but they're not Mm -hmm. the same. But they are are equally as terrifying as mandrills. 
Yeah, it's one of those species where you get like males that are maybe three times as large as the females and they tend to have these, you know, they have like huge neck muscles and huge sharp canine teeth and they're very, yeah, they're very, I do see something, okay, I will preface this by saying that in no way am I uh, agreeing with Mr. Vendramini. However, there is kind of like a primal reaction that we have to threatening characteristics and seeing something like a mandrill or a drill. Um, I want to, I want to put up a picture of a mandrill and just put, this is not a drill. Uh, (laughs) We can also put up our Neanderthal again. (laughs) This is not a drill. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, but if you see them, you know, making an aggression face, yeah. You know, there is a very deep-seated part of the brain that reacts and goes, whoop, nope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, hit yeah. me with type four. Okay. Type four. Um, type four reports often come from the north or northeast. So these are from your neck of the woods. Um, I live in California. Your original neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. From Connecticut. Um, these have been referred to as early man Bigfoot. And um, the American okay. Almas. So the Almasti are um, a flavor of like bipedal relic hominid that mm-hmm. um, are uh, that are not real report- that are reported in mm-hmm. um, like the Caucasus and like okay. through Central Asia. So they they've got their own thing going on, but they are like seem like pretty like chill. Oh, that's like nice. Chill, I like, chill relic hominids. Yeah, like chill, chill Bigfoot. Yeah, um, they are the most human-looking of the hairy bipedal. This, this says humanoids. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's that's a term I'm okay with actually. Okay. Here. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So they're humanish, human adjacent. Yeah. Humanoid. Sure. Yeah. Um, possessing traits of an archaic or prehistoric man. Which the first time I read that, I was like, what? <laughs> But they, know, they, like, they don't mean like prehistoric in terms of like Paleolithic man. They no, mean, not indigenous. They mean like pre-human, yeah. I think. So like they're pre-homo typ- sapiens. Yeah. And so Bigfoot 411 goes on to say they're typically a bit leaner than the type ones, but they are still large and well-muscled. Uh-huh. Oh, hey. It's a keto. It's a yeah. keto type one. Yeah. Um, a hairy homo heidelbergensis. Oh, is what a, alliteration. I know. Is a decent model for the type four. They have less facial hair than the other types. The crown of the head can have thinning hair or even be bald on top. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, some eyewitnesses have reported beards and mustaches ranging from just noticeable to fully grown. <laughs> so the first ones are the, the teens like, hi. Yeah. <laughs> Type fours have round, not conical heads. Um, that's something else that you you hear in like the patty types, yeah. where they have like the rec- like the the sloping yeah, forehead yeah. and the sagittal okay. crest. Right. It results in sort of like a conical look. Um, sure, their noses are hooded. Uh-huh. The mouth is wider than what we would consider normal. Rude, rude. <laughs> the teeth are square and human looking, like. Human yeah, yeah. teeth, not tiny humans in their mouth. Um, ah! <laughs> the skin color is pasty gray, again rude, or black with a leathery appearance. Some people Moisturize. think that these are hybrids, part human, part novel primate. Novel primate? Is that like, is that with them That's, and us? Um, they may be. 
They may be, but no, they may not. But all members of like, <laughs> that's something where I'm like, no, that's not, that isn't, that isn't how it is. Like, if they can't, are real, it can't won't be. be like that. Um, can't be. They may That's be. not how genes do. Right, exactly. Like <laughs> that, that, no. <laughs> um, they, but we'll get in, we'll get into how they may be and how they may not be in a minute. Um, but all members of the genus Homo developed and used tools. That's not wrong. <laughs> I know. I was waiting for you to be like, fair. Yep. There are no okay. reports of type fours using tools of any kind. If they are human, why would they stop creating and using tools? They don't need them. They've ascended. They can do things with their mind. Don't now. no. Do not. Do not give me that Shasta nonsense. So this is not the first time I've heard it theorized that what is known to us as Bigfoot is actually just a relict population of some kind of extinct hominid. So there are two primary candidates in the in this world for what they could be. The other is an extinct genus of ape called Gigantopithecus. The name is pretty straightforward. It means giant ape. Sure um, does. They were indeed giant. Yeah, about nine Al- feet tall, right? Also, they, yeah, they were estimated, they've been estimated to stand, um, if indeed they did stand upright, um, at up to nine feet, if they stood. Um, and I keep saying that because no postcranial remains have ever been excavated to date, meaning we only got big skulls and big teeth, but no big anything else to study. So they say, you know, we know they're giant. Um, we also know they're an ape because they, yeah, they're, yeah. Um, they're most closely related to orangutans. So Yeah, so the only evidence we have of Gigantopithecus, so there were two subspecies. Uh, the most common one is Gigantopithecus blackie. And those, they're both, they were found because someone found teeth in a Chinese apothecary. Yeah. So like what we have, it's not even, so you mentioned we have big skulls and big teeth. That's not even actually. We've got. We have big teeth and a fraction of jaw. Okay. Yeah. We've got big, so we've got like, big teeth and big mandible bit. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. there's no, there's no upper cranial part. There are no post cranial. So there's no body bones. Yeah. Right. So, so we know that they're uh, most closely related to orangutans because of proteomics studies that have been done. And I think may not in fact Can be you totally published that? yet. Proteomics, it's, it is an analysis of collagen proteins, I think, and other proteins from bone and tooth enamel, things like that, that can give a chemical readout that can be traced like a species fingerprint. So every species has its own unique fingerprint of certain proteins, and you can, um, you can test remains and figure out what signature it looks most closely related to from a database of samples. So, um, okay. yeah, I'm not actually not sure if that study has been published yet, but, uh, there are a number of lines of evidence that suggest that Gigantopithecus is pretty close to orangutans. Yeah. So breaking news, it's a giant ape. Um, so Gigantopithecus. So yeah. So if we, we, Definitely don't know a whole lot about them, but they they did happen and they were big. Um, and where they yeah. happened and were big was in Asia. Um, a lot of the... They were huge in Asia. They were huge in Asia. <laughs> um, in the Miocene and they survived into the Pleistocene. Um, at which point there were changes in climate that resulted in their food supply going away because they were used to like chomping kind of on bamboo really, eaters like pandas. They were kind of like pandas um, where they like ate, they, they ate leaves, like 
shoots on leaves, uh, they didn't eat grass. And so when their climate was shifting towards savanna, the plant, yeah. like the plant buffet shifted towards something that wasn't Yeah, then it became, them. yeah, it was more nutrient poor. Yeah. And they would have had to just, they, it, yeah, it, you're exactly right. It could not sustain them. Yeah. And so I'm just so excited to be on a like footing that I understand. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, so, um, let me cling to this. Eventually they went extinct. Or did yes. they? No, they definitely did. Um, yeah, although they did. <laughs> some have, have theorized that, including like capital S scientists, that like if this is, if this were a thing, perhaps, or even not even if this were a thing, perhaps these creatures could have also crossed the Bering Land Bridge into North America because lots of megafauna did. Lots of megafauna like during the Miocene and into the Pleistocene, um, well, the, during the Pleistocene, like came to North America yeah. from yeah. Asia. And then I don't know. People came then. <laughs> I know, I know. No, but like I'm saying people had different diets. So right. No, but I'm saying like there were because people also were following their food the, sources yes, as the they crossed. And the so yes. like sure, maybe there, like maybe one day there will be a Gigantopithecus bit excavated in like the Canada. far north of North America or something. Sure. Yeah. Possible. Um, but some people take that theory a, little, a step further and say that um, they too, like the, when they got here, they've wild away the past dozen or so thousand years in the woods. But like you would notice one. Um, you would. And so would. a cool thing, a cool thing that um, Anna pointed out to me while we were writing this is that they probably shared an environment with Homo erectus. Yeah, uh, Gigantopithecus. So they, yeah, they overlapped. The two species overlapped in Asia for a while. And in fact, um, I think one of the caves where there was um, some Gigantopithecus tooth found also had Homo erectus remains. I think I'm remembering that right. So yeah, they probably encountered one another, but that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean that like. they became a novel primate or something that's not no 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 like the the implications of them encountering each other and inhabiting the same environment are not the same as in like denisova cave or or things like no it's like me going for a walk and seeing a deer it doesn't mean that there are now human deer hybrids it means that two species encountered one another and went huh yeah yep so but but as for the other um candidate Hmm. That is actually related to humans uh, that was mentioned <laughs> in type four. Um, Homo hylobrigensis. Where did our, yeah. where did those cousins go? Why haven't they hit yeah. me up on Facebook? Well, I can't, I can't answer that, but well, oh, I can though. Um, so first a refresher or maybe some new background information for any listeners who haven't got a chance to uh, listen to our three part series on human evolution. So, Homo hylobrigensis first evolved in Africa around 700,000 years ago, and they used to be thought of as the last common ancestor between us, Homo sapiens, and Neanderthals. So that split supposedly happened around 600,000 years ago when Homo hylobrigensis populations were really starting to move around. Some groups migrated northward and west out of Africa and into Europe, and uh, those populations were thought to have gradually evolved into Neanderthals. And then the groups that stuck around in Africa at the same time were evolving into Homo sapiens. So that is actually becoming a less and less popular explanation. The thought now is increasingly that humans evolved from a branch of an earlier species like Homo erectus, and Homo hylobrigensis was in fact just kind of an an adjacent 
concurrent branch of our family tree. So that basically from about 2014 onward has sort of been uh, increasing in popularity as an explanation for our relationship to Homo heidelbergensis. So it's it's still uncertain. But whatever happened by around 200,000 years ago in both Europe and Africa, you don't really see heidelbergensis in the fossil record anymore. You see early versions of humans and Neanderthals and Denisovans and Floresiensis. So with heidelbergensis, it's not that the populations went anywhere. In fact, we don't really know what happened. Um, the populations just phased out or were subsumed, something like that. You know, populations go extinct. It happens. It happened multiple times in the human fossil record, right? We we started off with Australopithecus, some of our very earliest ancestors. There's a branch of the Australopithecus family called Paranthropus that were really super well adapted to a particular niche. And then that niche went away and they they died out. It's like, you know, there's not a progressive ladder of evolution. It's this right. weird branchy shrub. And sometimes there are side branches. And it seems like Homo heidelbergensis was kind of one of these closely related side branches that existed for a while and then did not. Yeah. So, so there's that. Yeah. All over the world, there, are, there seem to be sort of these ubiquitous sightings of something. Something human-like, something human-y, ape Yeah, and different kinds of some things, depending yeah, on who you are. Yeah, different flavors. Yeah. So that ubiquity, does that mean that it's more likely that these Bigfoots exist in some form? Which yeah. has been argued. Yeah, in the same way that, you know, the similarities of different, uh, I don't know, words in different languages that are similar across, you know, big global reaches, you know, it, it suggests that maybe these these words are very old and very common. But that's not it's not a universal concept. The the ubiquity of these sightings means that people can take a form that they know, humans or other primates, and and warp it or have the idea of something that is like a human, but other, different and weird in some way that makes for a great story. So what you have is instead of a ubiquitous thing that's based on a foundation of truth, you have the diffusion of myths and folktales. And so that's why in a lot of different cultures, you have a flood myth, right? You have this idea of a, something making an etch-a-sketch out of the world and shaking it for a do-over, right? So something that wipes out all of civilization and starts over. Or you have, in many, many different cultures, you have a Cinderella story, or you have a fundamentally abused young woman who... Turns out okay, yeah, and like um, becomes a princess. Yeah, like, yes, and because it's a it's a story that everyone wants, right? Like it's yeah. you know it's it's a trope that is sort of universally popular, and so without verifiable evidence, it's much more likely that these these sightings of humanoids, primateoids, uh, it's more likely that it's a it's a cultural phenomenon rather than any kind of um, actual thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so in my tootling around on the internet for this episode, Doodle, I found, doodle, doodle. 
Yeah. Beep, boop, boop. Um, I found a very, very cool series of maps put together by Esri, who uh-huh. they're the makers of ArcGIS, yeah. okay. which is a <laughs> geographic information system that can map all sorts of data on like accurate maps of the Earth. Um, so that's used for everything from tracking like archaeological features across the landscape to developing policies governing like city planning and transportation um, to saving endangered species. Like it's a really really powerful set of softwares um but you can also yeah, do amazing. really cool data I'm visualization very bad at it <laughs> yeah oh same yeah um like notoriously bad at it um Oof. and so it's really good for also data visualization so that's why yes, it's, yes, it's it can very be very important in terms of um developing policy or education and things like that because it, you can take very granular data and uh process it in such a way that you can you can see it see trends and stuff yeah yeah um and so something that esri does is this this initiative called story maps um which are kind of these the very cool little things that you can scroll through where there's a narrative um along with a variety of data being used to illustrate that narrative so in this case there's one on the story of bigfoot sightings and belief in bigfoot in the united states and then more generally in north america what yeah, it's That's really, awesome. really, are you looking at it? It's really cool. No, can I click um, it? Am I allowed to click on this yeah. right now? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, from this point, no, once we got past that Neanderthal, like, it's all good. Okay, <laughs> okay, great. You Gucci. Yeah. Uh, there's a, the, like, the correlation between the density of Bigfoot sightings map and, and, mm-hmm. and then the correlation with the belief in the urban belief legends. Map. Yeah. Um, there, it does seem to suggest a connection between certain geographical areas, local culture, and belief in urban legends when looking at that the phenomenon sense. of Bigfoot sightings across the country. For And the um, story maps says, quote, for example, both maps have hotspots near Seattle, Cleveland, and Central Florida. Each of that. these locations oh, have high levels of yearly precipitation, are relatively close to sea level, and are close to densely populated areas with easily accessible rural areas nearby. These connections hmm. suggest that the occurrence of Bigfoot sightings may be more connected to local culture and geography than the physical presence of Bigfoot. Sure. Um, and then the story maps project concludes with, quote, for example, looking at and comparing the sightings density map with the ecology map can provide information that may lead to geographical connections between Bigfoot and humans. Additionally, by using native the native populations map, noticing that there are more Bigfoot sightings in modern times in areas where there is a higher concentration of Native American tribes can point to a connection between the interpretation of what is being seen during a supposed Bigfoot encounter and Native culture. So it's really cool. It's a really cool. Yeah. And then they, they also say that, like, if there is something real happening that just hasn't been um, properly. So it could be something that has to do with, like, the geography or, like, atmospheric conditions. Like, there are things that lend to something in the water. Well, no, no. I'm saying, like, <laughs> like how no, like, I... like ghost lights. Like ghost lights are like there are ghost lights in um, North Carolina. Like there's a certain in the smoke. It has to do with methane or something, right? No, or, no, 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 no. These are oh, ghost lights. <laughs> this is, oh. uh, so the ghost lights of this one specific place, um, it has to do with um, refraction of light and haze and the local topography. And, oh, and so it's there a, is something about like swamp gases. And, yeah, that's and that's different. Lights, but. That's, okay, sorry. That's different. But the, like these specific ghost lights are um, were eventually like 
create like they could be replicated and in study oh, because cool. it's something it is it is real it's something real and it's something spooky and it's something mm-hmm. that isn't immediately understood and so there could also be something to be said for real and spooky something that is real and spooky and just not yet explained but right. you can look at these sort of intersections and correlations uh, that make for um, really compelling stories about what people like not necessarily what people are seeing but what the thing they're seeing means to them ah yes yes yeah yeah This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. So, and that's what I'm interested in is like that idea of like what it means. Yeah. Which is far more anthropological, really. Exactly. Um, And so along the same lines as writing it off as like a cultural or folklore phenomenon with no biological reality behind it, there is an argument that's made among sort of Bigfoot truthers that big Mm. science, the science industrial complex doesn't take Bigfoot research serious, doesn't take Bigfoot research seriously. um, And that no mainstream researchers deign to participate in cryptozoological research. Um, some people who hold this position happen to be listed listed on my birth certificate. <laughs> However, <laughs> this is Hi, not exactly true. No, just just the one person. The oh, other okay. one, uh, <laughs> she's got her yeah. she's got her own thing. She's got her own stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, however, this isn't exactly true. While many will reject Bigfoot hypotheses outright in that kind of dismissive jerk way that we've talked about before when topic talking about like pseudoscience and pseudoarchaeology um yeah. it doesn't really help anyone see our ken fader episode yes, and also see our ancient aliens episode um, yes yes that many others have participated in research and lent their expertise to the subject so let's let's meet some of them mm. first up we've got jeff meldrum who is a professor of anatomy and anthropology um in the school of biological sciences at Idaho State University, and he is the author of Sasquatch, Legends Meet Science, um, which sought to apply. And so it's a it's a trade book. So it's a like a popular science book, um, which sought to apply the scientific method to theories and folklore of Bigfoot sightings and trace evidence. Um, He also heads up the journal Relict Hominoid Inquiry. (laughs) I'm subscribing you. Thank you. And controversially, seems not to be unconvinced about the possible existence of said relic hominoids. Huh. And I would like to think that he would not 
think that I overstated his belief in that sentence. Um, Indeed. In an editorial published in the inaugural issue of Relict Hominoid Inquiry, um, Meldrum points to recent discoveries of hominin antecessors and relatives, such as the Denisovans, Homo floresiensis, and um, those found in Red Deer Cave and elsewhere in East Asia, um, as potential yeah. examples of relict populations um, that did survive longer than the anthropological community thought until they were found. Um, and right. then th- they could possibly be a model for others that may have survived longer than previously thought possible. So it's it's interesting. Hmm. Um, and so he's not, like, it's sort of like, there is a remote possibility. We are still making discoveries of um, hominid species and subspecies and yeah and so it's, we don't we don't know anything yeah, so we don't we don't know and so we don't know we don't know and so that's exciting <laughs> the fact that we yeah. don't know is exciting and so that's something yeah. that that's what this guy's doing um and like he is a part of big science like he's at idaho state yeah. um sure as for living bigfoots today there always is this like clamoring for evidence, whether it be blood, mm. hair, scat, etc. I can't tell you how many times I've clamored for Bigfoot scat. <laughs> and by that, I mean Bigfoot doing jazz. <laughs> Excuse me, Bap. Um, yeah, we don't know if they have language. Um, no. Plenty of samples have been tested for DNA, many of which have been tested by Todd Disotel, a professor at UMass Amherst. So he's a professor of anthropology, um, and he he's been in a, he's been like a talking head on a lot of things. And he earlier in his career had a real like Jackson Galaxy look going on. Oh wow! With like a silly facial Sideburns. hair and a mohawk, but now he just looks like a professor. <laughs> he looks fine. Um, he doesn't, he just doesn't have like the mohawk. Um, so I'll link to the transcript, uh, a link to the transcript and audio of an interview he did a while back when he had the mohawk, um, with one of my favorite podcasts, Monster Talk. Um, Mm -hmm. and Monster Talk is a show in which the hosts examine stories of the paranormal and supernatural through a skeptical lens. It sounds like you. Great show. Yep. Sounds like me. In that particular episode, Disotel walks the audience through the process of collecting and testing samples for DNA and confirms that when DNA is extractable from samples from Bigfoots, it has always been very much identifiable. Um, yeah, cases, as, not, as not Bigfoots. Exactly. Cases, right? yeah. in which, uh, cases in which the data has been inconclusive um, have always been the product of contamination. So it's not like, oh, we don't know what it is. It's just like, no, it's not a thing. <laughs> like it's that's so inconclusive isn't isn't yeah it's not it, it doesn't means. mean like dun, dun, dun. no yeah. it just means like we, um, we messed so it up it's always been the product of contamination either by improperly preserving it the person collecting it like sticking their finger in it or something or like Oops. a lab tech contaminating it even then um he also goes on to explain that you can just test like the other people that have come in contact with it and bam you just found your intern brad yeah anytime you have a dna lab um you always the people who work there have to submit samples so that they can then if something comes up as inconclusive they can also run the list of people who work in that lab and they go ah yeah and he says like oh i've not i've not added the ones that i've um that i've run to the database because they're like goats 
<laughs> it's not it's not a person. This is so. a goat. Yeah, but um I know I've asked you this about this before. Um yes. but in terms of like identifying an unknown species in DNA, that's something that we've talked about with the Denisovans, right? Yeah, I think that's when we So yeah, there are um, these rare instances of kind of ghost populations, which is a very spooktober thing to call them. Yes. But it's basically um, you can look at human DNA and trace uh, trace back the populations that contributed to that DNA for the most part. But sometimes there seems to be sections of certain people's DNA that come from a population that's just not around anymore. And that doesn't mean that that population is anything spooky or non-human. It just means that groups of people travel around and sometimes they phase out, right? So basically, um, let me back up a little bit. So our genetic makeup is uh, basically made up, uh, well, it's made up of genes and those genes have variants that are called alleles. And so sometimes certain alleles, uh, which arise from genetic mutation, come from populations that aren't around anymore. So a population may have existed, let's say, 5,000 years ago and had a few unique alleles within that population that they passed on to descendant communities that then became other populations. But that original founding population just isn't there anymore. right? So that original 5,000-year-old population that maybe they lived for in an area for 800 years and then just kind of phased out of existence. And in that 800 years, they may have interacted with other human populations that, and so in interacting, you know, you've got gene flow, you've got genes moving from one human population to another. So you may have some of those unique alleles that make their way into another human population. And then when the original founding population isn't around anymore, those unique alleles still are kind of kicking around in overall in the human genome because they have been passed along to other populations. So you can have these kind of relics of earlier populations that aren't around anymore. And so they're called, it's called sort of ghost DNA, but it's not, it's not anything more spooky than that. It's just populations that aren't present extant yeah. anymore that have passed on their genes. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah. that's how we, we can figure out if there's like a missing link. Um, there isn't. There, there's not. <laughs> there's not. There's not. It's not. not a Bigfoot anyway. Um, yeah. And so another corner in which anthropologists can and have weighed in on the possible existence of some kind of relic hominin population uh, is in the, air, uh, in the arena of physiology. It's my arena. This is my cage yes. fight. <laughs> so ah. um, another... <laughs> Another episode of of Monster Talk. Um, seriously, this show is so good. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to them on social media when we publish this episode and be like, "Hey, thanks, guys." Ken Fader. That's how I first encountered Ken Fader. Uh, oh, was he was on there. Okay. I'm like, who's this guy? But yeah, Monster <laughs> no. Talk is so good. It's so great. They talk about all kinds of stuff. Um, okay. Well, I will I will definitely monsters. reach out to them. Yeah. So yeah, well, another hey. interview with them um, was with. Uh, the physical anthropologist and science education advocate, Eugenie Scott. Um, and so she she raised uh, sort of how Bigfoot, she talked about how Bigfoot is good for um, developing and honing critical thinking skills. And so she used the example of the caloric needs of a Bigfoot. 
So remember up ahead, we up, up, up top, we were talking about how um, they're somewhere between seven and 10 feet. They weigh like five to 800 pounds. Like they're mm. just so huge. They're so, large. Yeah, they're very, very big. Um, and so we know, and, and so if you think about like the larger the animal, the more energy they have to consume to stay alive. Right. Um, that is just, that's how matter works. Yeah. And so that's, <laughs> that, that's part of the reason why megafauna isn't around because yeah, they didn't the make it. changed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so we know how, how many, how many calories a human needs to consume to survive in a day. We know how many calories uh, a gorilla needs. And so if we're dealing with something that's bigger than a gorilla, um, it can be theorized that, a Bigfoot would need to consume at least 9,000 calories a day. That and is so, so many calories. That is a lot of calories. And then I will say, also, though, I will say, um, like, for example, there are um, really high ends of, of humans, like uh, Olympic swimmers and stuff that have something like a 9,000, 10,000 calorie diet, something insane like that. Yeah. So but, but we're unique in that, you know, we have fundamentally altered our food environment and, and yeah. we can eat very very and, nutritional high calorie foods. And so if you look at the map that like the Bigfoot uh, research organization, Bifro, if you look at what Bifro like, puts <laughs> well, reason on, why they put me on I Beef Row. I didn't there's a reason why I didn't bring them up until an beef hour row. into the show. <laughs> Um, so they, they're the ones that kind of manage this database of sightings and the, and like where the sightings come from. And so you've got right. sightings from all types of environments in the U S so right. you How? Don't, like you see them like you, well, as we talked about those hot spots, but you also see them cited in both like East Texas and West Texas. And yeah, there's what not a lot kind of. Like what kind of thing can live in both of those environments? The thing that can live in both of those environments is a human because we and have a, and a cow. What? No, like <laughs> if you were hurt, like but like also a cow, like cattle probably wouldn't. We don't cattle have cattle get fed cattle. by humans. Yeah, I know, like, I know, I know. Yeah, so I'm just being a turd. Don't. I'm trying to make a really good point here about critical thinking. No, you're making you're making an excellent point. Yeah, Please continue. So I will shut you, up. If you think about how can something that is of those like dimensions, dimensions. and like specs that, that are reported. How can it live in these environments if it needs to consume 9,000 calories a day? On top yeah. of that, how does it need to consume? How can it consume 9,000 plus calories a day? Think about it, like it would probably need more if it's cold. It would probably need to consume more if it's ranging a lot, if it's Just moving a lot to get food. All day, every day. Yeah, right. Um, but also that we've not seen them right they're not like, only because you eating know, that have, much but they're doing it in stealth yeah stealth and, mode. So, and so you have um so if we're going to think about this as a like a, as a real like relict hominin population like we have no evidence in our in like the human evolutionary record of ever being able to like cloak and like <laughs> time slip so like wait whoa <laughs> yeah like that like like that like the like paranormal bigfoot is how some folks get around this question yeah. which is a difficult right. question of yeah. like how because you know people have like bears in their backyards 
because the bears need food. Like it, this is a very common, this is a common thing among folks that live in like very rural areas where there are wild populations that will start ranging in on you coming into town, like eating, like they don't like they'll eat. Yeah. If they run out of food, they'll go. If they run out of things to eat in the woods, like. Yeah. Or they'll start rummaging in dumpsters. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that this isn't happening, especially like if we're going to talk about climate change and like climate pressures, like you imagine finding a Bigfoot in your garbage can. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) So even though like even though there are like fossil like remains of primates in the Americas that aren't us from a long time right, ago, though. exactly like millions of years ago, exactly when it had a vastly different environment and vastly different resources available. Yeah, and so the 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 ecosystems that we have now here today, especially with the like incursions of like climate stress and like human population, mm-hmm. um, yeah. this isn't what. Any extant primate species could survive, but also we would see them. And so also talking about like, oh, do we not see them because there aren't many of them? Like, let's talk about population dynamics. Like, Mm -hmm. like there has to be. So, I mean, remember back 50,000 years ago when predatory Neanderthals had cannibalized and raped us to a number of 50 in the Levant. And then we repopulated the earth. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Remember what happened? Um, that probably wouldn't have worked out super great for us as humans. Not but genetically, these, no. Yeah. So is there a like relic hominin lonely hearts club out there? Like <laughs> what happens to populations when they get too small? Other That's than That's the t-shirt. Relic hominin lonely hearts club. Here it is. <laughs> but so what actually happens to pop? Cause this is something that has happened to populations. Yep. Yep, um, human ones even. Yeah, and so what does that look like? Okay, so we're gonna first talk about something called the MVP, which is not most valuable. You, primate. Amber, I get it. I was gonna say most valuable podcaster. I was gonna ah! say something nice about you. Um, no, You're this is called this primate. MVP standing for minimum viable population. So that's basically it is a lower constraint on the population of a species such that it can survive in the wild. And so it's a term that's commonly used in the fields of biology, ecology, and conservation biology. So that it refers to the smallest pop- possible size a biological population can be without facing extinction from natural disasters or demographic, environmental, or genetic stochasticity, which is just random events. Stochastic events are random. When we say population, we're talking about interbreeding individuals of the same species in a similar geographic area that aren't really exchanging genetic material with other groups of the same species. So that means that this population is relatively isolated. Their gene pool remains relatively consistent with any unique genes, again, alleles, arising just from mutation. So MVP is typically used to refer to wild populations, though I have seen it in the context of like managed populations or even zoo populations. Mm -hmm. So as you might guess, there is no universal MVP. It totally depends on species and on environment. So that said, though, a smaller population is naturally more susceptible to extinction because a small population can't recover as well from random adverse events. Like if you have a population of a million and you have an earthquake that wipes out 10,000 people, it makes a smaller dent than if you had a population of 10,000 to begin with. Right. Right. In the interest of this argument, though, let's think about humans. 
Homo sapiens, a species that in general, in hunter-gatherer circumstances, needs about 1,500 to 2,000 calories a day to survive, depending on how strenuous your average day is and and the the ecosystem that you're living in and the kinds of food that you're getting, etc. An article from NBC that I found discussing the possible population size needed for, this was in the context of populating a mission to another Earth-like planet, and the number surprised me. but it was so it was the research of an astrophysicist named Frederic Marin at the University of Strasbourg who used mathematical modeling to arrive at a figure of just 98 people. That was really surprising wow. to me. Yeah. So this is from that article um, from NBC News. When he wasn't busy simulating galaxies and black holes, Moran created a computer program that mimics the progress of a breeding population. Then he used the program dubbed Heritage heritage that's yeah, cause calling it heritage of, makes it sound like a white separatist thing it really does <laughs> it's also the name of the like local bed and breakfast near my parents heritage? in a very very Ew. it's called heritage okay. heritage and it's like a very very white town <laughs> yikes <laughs> yikes um so he used the program dubbed heritage to simulate the risks a spacefaring population would face including the effects of inbreeding as well as of catastrophic events like a deadly pandemic or being hit by some celestial object just 98 healthy people would be needed to operate the ship over many generations and to set up a healthy non-inbred population on another world he estimates so obviously i'm not talking about bigfoot operating a spaceship that's another podcast altogether but the idea of setting up a viable population somewhere um an isolated population is what i was focusing on here um that number holds even for his test case of a space arc mission lasting more than 6,000 years, although he allows for the population aboard the arc to grow over time up to about 500, perhaps. So that was what I took as the lower and kind of upper lower bounds of that right. population size between 98 and 500. But like we'd have to know way more about a breeding population of Bigfoots to correctly adjust this model. We'd need to know things like birth rate, life expectancy, actual caloric and nutritional needs, things like that. And I don't think that that is data that we have, right? It, no, Do we, we don't have that data. Okay. We don't. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but in a tiny way, that is a point in favor of maybe, we, you know, there could be quite small populations of Bigfoot. But 98 is still, that is, you'd see a big, you would see them. Even yeah. if it was super rural, super forested. Yeah. A population of 100 people, that's noticeable. Yeah, yeah there are, and there are um, areas in uh, the Pacific Northwest in particular that, oh yeah, that like, could contain them as the, yeah, yeah, so the like, idea you could narrow it down like if you were going to have a population of between 98 and 500 individuals that range from 7 to 10 feet in height and are around 700 pounds yeah you'd still have we would probably see them yeah probably. and so it's it's so where we where we leave you until next week on Spooktober. And I really don't like doing the thing of being like, or could it? Because that's why I started the story with my my personal encounter with a a Bigfoot. Uh, I mean, we could just leave it as like you saw or you heard well, that's an what I'm unexplained saying. Like, there, thing. There is there is a um 
so like Jeff Meldrum has posited, it isn't impossible, but it is highly improbable. Yeah. And but like by looking at like the Bigfoot phenomenon, it is it does give us like a rather interesting and um, new lens onto looking at other points at which there have been um, human populations that have either been subsumed or blinked out or perhaps have existed long enough to be folded into local myth, like in, in talking about like Floresiensis and things yeah, like and that. That's, that's really fundamentally, I think, what interests us because you yeah. and I are, are anthropologists and we're not quite as interested in the idea of this relic hominin population as we are in understanding what myths like Bigfoot mean to people in the context of their culture, in the context of storytelling, in the context of explaining unexplainable things. Mm-hmm. It's That's what's really, really cool about this and, yeah. and it, what continues to be, you know, neat and spooky. Yeah. And the thing that I heard when I was 16... Um, it was that Neanderthal going. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was like it was very scary. And it is something that other people have experienced and other people had either like the presence of mind or just like right place, right time to record what that sounded like. And I don't I don't know what it is. And that's yeah. fun. That's exciting, too. Spooktober is a foot. It's a happening. I know. Spooktober so, is a. Bigfoot. I ho- I know, and I hope everyone enjoyed this inaugural. This inaugural, like big this this just massive episode. About yeah, one of well, my- boy, it's 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 Sasquatch sized. Yeah, <laughs> it's chunky. Yeah, this this chunky chunky episode uh, to Ugh. start. So I um, we're gonna be we're gonna be real spooky. We're gonna be fun spooky, and we're gonna be scary spooky. Contemplative Straight up scary through, yeah. through this month. Mm. So I'm so excited. Y'all are here with me. And I'm thank excited. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in your ears soon with new Spooktober episodes. Ooh. I'm also excited to get to dust off the, the Spooktober theme, of which I am quite proud. The the theme music. As well the, you should be. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So you can find us and put us in your ears using all of your favorite podcatchers, all of them at once. You can especially uh, leave us reviews, please, and thank you at Apple Podcasts. Um, it really helps us out. And you can find us on the dirtpod.com. And if you want to help us make this show, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Social media, we're there. We're out there. You can follow us. You can engage with us on Twitter. We're at at Dirt Podcast on Instagram, we're at at the Dirt Pod, and on Facebook we are the Dirt Podcast. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Thank you all so much for Thank listening. Thank you. We love you. Bye. Ooh. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.